welcome to the City of the Great Gang podcast with your host, Tyler Swatsky. That's me. Hello. How we doing? I'm just groaning once again. I'm on those new weights, I think I said. I guess that's my new thing. I'm just going to open the show, tell you I'm on some new weights. I'm sore. I'm going to groan about it. Mm, there it is. Yeah, it hurts so good. It hurts so good. Look, I'm challenged by what I said last week with that tweet. You owe it to your family to lift weights? That challenged me. I'm not joking. (laughs) So, I guess that's my thing. That's how I start the show. Welcome to the podcast. Glad you're here. This is episode three out of a four-part series, The Marriage Special. We are on the topic of divorce today. Now... Divorce, I'm, gonna get, I'm getting right into this, you know, for time reasons. Divorce is a incredibly sad reality. And many of us, uh, I think a lot of the listeners here have experience with divorce. I, I do myself, but many of us have parents who divorced, either when we were too young to remember or while we were young kids or maybe even after we moved out. Uh, our siblings, some of them are divorced, and for some of us, we ourselves are divorced. And that is a sad reality, but it is one that is very common in our day and age. Well over 50% of marriages end up in divorce. This is a travesty. It is a tragedy across our land. I think I mentioned earlier that we are going to Christianize our nations through faithful gospel families. While divorce is something that puts a pretty big hamper on a faithful gospel family, you know, being a Christian witness. So divorce is a horribly painful and generationally affecting issue. And I want to talk about this... um, by starting out by saying that there are different opinions about divorce and that faithful brothers and sisters can disagree on divorce. It is not a salvific issue. It's not that if you believe that there is absolutely no such case where divorce is biblically permitted. If that is your stance, you're not cast from the kingdom. And if your stance is there are biblically permitted instances of divorce, you're not cast from the kingdom. This is not a salvific issue. Faithful brothers and sisters can disagree on this. However, I do want to say that the issue really is simpler than most people think, than most people assume. It is us who complicates it. So you, you will have certain pastors, John Piper, for instance, he's of the view that there are no permitted, essentially, divorce and remarriages. Like, he'll say that it's, like, you can't stop somebody from leaving if they're going to leave, but then you're single for the rest of your life. Uh, and every single time, divorce is sin, no matter what. And then there's John MacArthur, who recognizes that there are sinful divorces, and then there are non-sinful divorces. There are sinful remarriages and not sinful remarriages. So, faithful brothers and sisters can disagree. But the reason that I'm saying that this issue is simpler than most people think is because... Almost every time there is a divorce, it is pretty obvious which party 
is considered the guilty party in the matter. Now, hold your horses. Before you start, before anybody claims that I'm saying that somebody is not guilty, well, both parties, of course, contribute in sin. They both sin, nobody's perfect, everybody falls short, um, and yet there is a recognition, scripturally, that I'll get to, where one person takes on the lawful status of being the guilty party, while the other can have the lawful status of being the innocent party in the matter. And usually it's pretty obvious. Um, somebody gets pregnant with, somebody, with another man's child. Somebody completely abandons the faith. One of the partners abandons the faith completely and throws themselves into a, a lifestyle of sin. Uh, another person just straight, straight up cheats. You know, usually it's pretty easy to decipher who would be the, the lawfully designated guilty and innocent party. But if we're going to talk about divorce, I think we should start also by defining marriage again. Marriage is a lifelong covenantal union between a man and a woman before God and community. Okay, so that's the definition. Marriage is a lifelong covenantal union between a man and a woman before God and community. It's not just a contract. This isn't just as long as I'm getting what I need out of the terms of the deal and you're getting what you need in your terms of the deal that we're going to keep going with this arrangement. It's more than a contract. It's a covenant. It is a, a sacred union that you make before God. And then it is confirmed by your community and the witnesses are very important in that role. Naturally, this covenant is only supposed to end at death. And now this is where nearly all Christians agree. When you get married, that is a covenantal union that is supposed to last until death. Widespread agreement. We're good on that. It is contrary to God's design to end it before then. When God draws people to be married, the Bible is very explicit. What God has joined together, let man not put asunder or separate. What God puts together in marriage, when you come into this union, it is contrary to God's design that it end before then. That's not why he brings people together for marriage. And this is also why it's usually easy to know who the lawfully guilty party is. Because usually one of them is acting contrary to God's design. Now it can be both. It very much can be both. But usually, uh, and I'm talking again mostly to a Christian audience, usually one person will be trying to work it out in the faith, with the church, with the community, trying to reconcile, and the other one completely refuses. That's a very common case, while another case is it's extremely obvious because they were sexually unfaithful to their partner. And there's no, there's no fight to be had about that. You can make excuses about it. Oh, he was, uh, he was a pretty nasty man to me. Or she put on a whole lot of weight after we got married, so I had to look for some elsewhere. You know, there you can make <clears throat> you can make up all kinds of excuses, and you can try to mollify it, pacify yourself, and all of this. And yet, the covenant union that you make before God and community is not so easily dissolvable by your opinions of the matter. This is a matter of objective obedience. When you make that covenant, you stay faithful to that covenant because you promised that you vowed that before God for better for worse. So even if they are a bit of a nasty guy, or even if she let herself go, that covenant is to be held to. And so usually it's obvious who the guilty party is. 
And now we are also in covenant relationship with God individually and personally. And just like in that covenant that we have with God, no one can fully live up to every stipulation that we have before God. We are all guilty of not living up to the standard that God has for us, which is perfection, of course. Only Jesus Christ walked this earth perfectly. So we don't uphold our end of the covenant relationship perfectly. Nobody can live up to every stipulation of the Lord's. We are not perfect. Uh, yet most of our acts are covered by common grace. The Lord gives mercy. We are to be repentant or to try to we're to, to pray that we have the strength to turn from our sin, that we're given that strength, uh, and we live more and more sanctified lives as we grow in grace. This is also what we hope happens in marriage. That is what's supposed to be happening. And yet, just like in our personal relationship with God, in marriage, no partner is going to fully, perfectly abide by every part of that vow. No one perfectly stands with their partner in total loyalty in total harmony for better or for worse, but we, we stumble. Um, and we're supposed to cover those acts for our spouse with common grace, frequent grace. There's sometimes periods of life where it is daily forgiving your spouse, and I think many people know that you can go through those types of seasons. However, as it, it is true that there will be all these little acts that can happen even on a daily basis that you we cover with common grace, there are certain covenant-breaking acts which do destroy the union completely. There are, biblically speaking, certain covenant-breaking acts that destroy the union of marriage, that then permit divorce. But it is a high standard. We need to stop thinking that it is acceptable to get divorced because I'm unhappy. Or other reasons, like we didn't get married in a church. Or... We weren't believers when we got married at first. Uh, the Bible addresses that. What do you know? But we can put our personal opinions as the standard for that we can break this. We can dissolve the union that God has put together. But we can't. It is a high standard. There are two relevant texts that talk about covenant-breaking acts that destroy the union. The first is Matthew 19. Jesus is being questioned about... Uh, the Pharisees are asking him about uh, when it's lawful to send one's wife away. What are the causes for it? And Jesus says in uh, Matthew 19, verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? It's a good question. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Okay, sexual immorality, Greek word, porneia. Porneia, you probably already recognize the root part of that word, but porneia is a word that has some broad meaning in terms of sexuality and sexual acts. It refers to adultery, so having sexual union with someone who is not your spouse. Adultery. Breaking of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. So it refers to that. It refers to incest. It refers to homosexuality. So... 
porneia is not just one sexual act, there's a few sexual acts involved in that word, and yet it is a, a high act. It's a high act. Like, it's not he, it's not a man looked at a woman who wasn't his wife in a bikini for a few seconds. That's not good. He, he should have his eyes on his wife and should treasure her and should not do that, but that's not breaking the covenant union of marriage. And that is an act that you cover by common grace. Or that the wife is uh, fantasizes about another man. You know, that's a horrible thing, and yet that's not, that's not at the same level as what, what Jesus is getting at with that word porneia. That it is a high sexual sin that is being referred to here. And so we get the first exemption, if you will. The first biblical reason where divorce is permitted from the words of Christ that on the grounds of sexual immorality, if, if a partner commits adultery, they become one flesh with somebody who is not their wife, that is, sec they have sexual union with someone who is not their husband or not their wife, that is committing porneia, sexual immorality, that is breaking the covenantal union, breaking the bond. So we have the first one. The second text is 1 Corinthians 7. And in 1 Corinthians 7, I quoted this the other week, but the Apostle Paul is giving principles for marriage. And he begins by saying that if any woman has a, verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, pay attention to this. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Okay, so what we're getting at there, the Apostle Paul, by the way, Apostle of Christ, he, he knows the commands of Christ, he's familiar with the Gospels, he knows what Christ said about marriage. He is saying that if there is an unbelieving partner who wants to separate from the marriage, who leaves the marriage, the believing partner is, is to let them go. You are not enslaved. God's called you to peace. You are to let them leave. You do not force them to stay because they are committing a covenantal union breaking act. And the act that they are committing is that of desertion or abandonment. So this is one partner abandons the marriage. They desert it. They just leave. And that is the second uh, reason, second exemption, and the second cause for biblical divorce. Grounds for divorce is what we usually call it. So ground number one, porneia, sexual immorality, adultery. Ground number two, desertion or abandonment from an unbeliever to a believer. So this means if you were both unbelievers and then you get married and one of you becomes a believer, that does not give you grounds to leave your partner just because they're not a believer now. And you would want, if it's your, if it's a wife who converts, she wants her husband to be the spiritual head of the home, but he's an unbeliever. Oh, so can I leave my marriage? Nope. If the unbeliever consents to stay with the believer, you stay and you throw yourself on God's grace and you trust in him to provide you with the strength to deal with that situation and maybe even save your husband. And this, so this applies across various situations, but the point is there are two cases, two grounds for divorce biblically. Those are the two. And 
this is addressed in what I think is one of the best written pieces that the the church has that speaks about divorce, and it is the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a is an authoritative statement of beliefs. It has been in, endorsed by the Protestant Church for centuries, and it has six paragraphs on marriage and divorce, and the first four out of the six have to do with marriage. I won't read those. I'm going to read the, the, the last two, paragraph five and paragraph six. This has to deal with divorce, and this is an authority which summarizes the scriptural teaching on the issue. And before I read that, I want to say that this is why I do struggle with those who take an extremely hardline view on divorce and remarriage, who say that it's never biblically permitted to divorce and never biblically permitted to remarry. If you're going to take that position, I, I hope you have uh, your conscience is clean before you that you take that position. However, you also just recognize that you are standing against the majority belief of the Protestant Church. Okay, so I'll show it to you. But if you are taking a very hardline view, you're against the history of the Protestant Church. You are against the view of the Reformers. You are against the view of the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you can get there convictionally, great, but make sure you know what you're talking about because I think, I fear that a lot of people who take very hardline stances on this are people who haven't done all that much study on the issue, don't have much personal experience with the issue, and don't know the history of it, and they want to sound pious, and it does sound pious. No divorce, we stay together forever, stop even thinking about it, no cases, once we open the ground then there's going to be divorce everywhere. Like, that sounds very pious, but it's incredibly idealistic and not possible. And not only that, but you're standing against the beliefs of the Protestant Church for centuries. Okay, Westminster Confession of Faith, question 24, uh, marriage and divorce. I'm going to read paragraph 5 and paragraph 6, and then we'll go through it a little bit. It's in older English, so you might not be able to follow it all the first try. Here we go. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after the divorce to, re to marry another as if the offending party were dead. 6. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, I'll explain that, Yet, nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Okay, let's talk about this. Older English, I'm going to break this down. Going back to number five in the beginning. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract. Notice that it says the word contract there. Um, this is referring to the engagement period. You're not married yet. You're, you've proposed. You're going to get married. You're engaged. If there is adultery or fornication committed after the contract, that is during your engagement period, being detected before marriage, 
giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. So during the time of your betrothal, during the time of, uh, of engagement, if somebody is sexually unfaithful, you do not have to go through with that marriage. You, you dissolve that contract. So that's the first line. Second line, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce. Okay, so now it's connecting it to the idea of before. If there is adultery, porneia, being committed after somebody is already married, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce. Now, when it says innocent, that word innocent, you should understand as capital I innocent. It's, it's a title. It's not a statement of pure fact. Um, nobody is purely innocent of all guilt. I was already trying to address that, but we all know that from common experience. When this says it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, that means innocent as in didn't commit adultery. They didn't commit the covenant breaking act. They are innocent of that. So the person who did not commit adultery is free to sue out a divorce. They can sue it out. That comes from pursue. They can go and make it happen. Sometimes the person who commits adultery wants to steal the benefits of the marriage without leaving it, even though they have already dissolved that union by their own actions. In, the ca in that case, the innocent party in the matter is able to pursue them that divorce, to get them out of the picture. Because you're not in that covenant of marriage anymore by definition. Now, we would hold or we would hope and we would teach in the church that there there is an opportunity there for the innocent party the innocent spouse to show grace that doesn't mean it has to necessarily end the marriage but they are free it is lawful to sue out the divorce we would try to work it out we would try to reconcile especially if they're both confessing believers we would try to reconcile it uh, but i'm not going to get into all of that the point is it is lawful for the innocent party to be the one who pursues the divorce in this case of covenantal breaking adultery. Moving forward, and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. We'll talk about that next week on remarriage. Moving on, number six. Uh, this is the statement that's going to be the hardest to, to understand when I read it in the Old English. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments... I'll stop there. Okay, although the corruption of man... We are all corrupt. It is because of our fallenness, because of our inner evil, because of our sin. Okay. Although the corruption of man, because of our sin, be such as is apt to study arguments. Because of our sin, we are going to be tempted to try to find reasons. We are going to look for ways to get out of a covenant. Um, I'm unhappy. Or they, they're, they're not fulfilling uh, what I want them to do. They changed after we got married. So because of our corruption, we will want to study arguments. We will want to find reasons to get out of this union if we are unhappy or it's not doing, it good, doing us good anymore or something like that. Although the corruption of man be such as is to apt, apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, so because of our corruption, we will try to find reasons to unduly put asunder, to break, to leave the marriage which God has joined together. This is what we do. I'm sure everyone can think of somebody who's done this. We all, if you ever talk to anybody who is divorced, it's amazing. Every single one of them is the innocent party. 
if you talk to them. Every, every one of them. It's always the other person who's the guilty party. It is few who have the... who, who will humbly admit if they were the guilty party. Uh, and yet, my whole point in all of this is it is not a personal, opinion-based uh, argument. It is a objective argument from Scripture whether someone's the innocent party or the guilty party. So... We will try to study arguments, we'll try to find ways to get out of this marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church. I'll stop there. Adultery or such willful desertion. There it is again. We, we read the two texts. These are the texts where the confession's getting it from. That the acts that dissolve a bond of marriage, adultery or willful desertion, as can no way be remedied by the church. We should learn a couple things there. First, in cases of desertion, for instance, one partner just leaves. They will give you reasons for why they left, and you might have to then start investigating. And by might, I mean you do have to start investigating if you are the church. You are going to get claims. You're going to get he said, she said. And if somebody's going to leave and claims to be a believer... The church is tasked with trying to now remedy this. That is what the confession is saying. We're supposed to bring this back together to reconcile, to find common ground, figure out what's going on. Is who, Who's the one whose sin is contributing most to this falling apart? Adultery, willful desertion. Um, or civil magistrate. Now, it's amazing. when like People used to live in a time where the civil magistrate was... A minister for good. Um, if you ever read the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 13, when it talks about submission to authorities, it says that we should not resist authorities because God has appointed them. Uh, in the older English, or in verse 4, it'll say, for he is God's servant for your good. Government is supposed to be God's servant. Uh, another older translation say they are God's minister for good. There have been societies where government has been a primarily good, godly instrument. And that is when uh, the civil magistrate is acting as they should act. And they get that is when we completely submit to them, when they act the way that they are in the role that God has given them. And in this confession, they lived in such a time where the civil magistrate would be concerned, that this is the civil courts, they would be concerned with remedying a broken marriage instead of where we are today, where the courts essentially incentivize divorce. They make it easy. No-fault divorce doesn't matter if they cheated on you. doesn't matter if they abandoned without biblical reason. It, the civil magistrate has no concern whatsoever for the biblical understanding of things, which means the true understanding of things. They are not upholding godly marriage or fighting against ungodly divorce. And yet, they, the time of the confession it was written, the civil magistrate was supposed to be involved in remedying these broken marriages. And so it's saying, although due to our corruption, we will try to find reasons to get out of what God has put together to get out of our marriages, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. That's it. Those are your two reasons. Finishing the sentence wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed. So there's supposed to be a public course of proceeding. 
Um, the way that this would work out practically is you would present what happened and there would be at the end of the investigation, at the end of figuring out and trying to remedy this, if it's still going into divorce, you would declare an innocent and a guilty party. And again, sometimes the innocent party is the person who is less godly in terms of like their actions, like they didn't outwardly, or they outwardly sinned more, or they're, they're just not a very savory person. But the person who left, who left that person, even if they were a bad spouse, it is the one who left who is the guilty party because they are no longer fulfilling the covenant of marriage. They've abandoned it. They've deserted it. Or in the more obvious case of uh, sexual immorality, even if the, the person you would think is the more godly one, oh, I cheated because they weren't fulfilling my needs or I don't know what they're... Maybe they were good in every single other area, but they are the ones who committed adultery. They are called the guilty party, the other can called the innocent party. The public orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. And that's the end of the confession, what it says on it. So that is, you don't get just get to personally decide if you get to dissolve your marriage. You don't get to decide if you can just divorce. You are not left to your own will and your own discretion. This is the point of taking it to the church. And in a society like today, I think a biblically faithful church is the only one you can go to. The civil magistrate is not in the business of remedying broken marriages. So your only course is course of action is the church. You go to the elders. And they are to give you, to provide their discretion, oversee the case, and come to the understanding of who is the guilty and who is the innocent party if it gets down to divorce. So those are the two biblical reasons. There are biblical grounds for divorce. I think it's a biblically impossible position to hold to say that there are not biblical grounds for divorce. They're clearly there, and there's only two. Adultery and desertion slash abandonment. And that means the person who was abandoned or the person who was cheated on get is permitted to pursue the divorce. As the innocent party, they are permitted to do this. Um, now, oftentimes, what will come up is the objection. What about cases of abuse? What about cases of he is violent towards me, or she is violent towards me? Usually it's not reported that women can be just as violent in these cases. What if they're violent? What if they're abusive to me? What if they withhold all funds from me, that I can't purchase what is necessary? What if they keep me strapped to the house and I can't even see my family? Like different types of abuse. What about cases of abuse? Am I permitted? Well, on the first, first of all, we have to be honest with the fact that the Bible doesn't speak that way. And so we have to understand this primarily by getting it, getting behind biblical thinking. I'll address that in a second. But first of all, you are permitted to take immediate steps to protect yourself. If you are in, if you or your children are in a physically, um, if it's a situation where you guys are in danger, you can take steps to remove yourself from that home. Maybe you need to stay with a parent or you call up an elder. Look, this is going on. They're violent. We need to get out of this house. Uh, you are permitted to leave the house, to take steps to protect yourself and your children. You can do that. Afterward, you then pursue steps with the church 
and, if necessary, the civil magistrate. So, you would then talk to your church about what's going on. Now, ideally, or what would one would expect is if one partner is being abusive, that you have already addressed this with somebody, with a pastor, with an elder, with a close friend first. You don't always have to go to the elders right away about everything, but start with a close friend. See, look, this is what's going on. What, like, am I seeing things right here or am I overthinking? Like, talk to somebody. Then if it's serious, you go to the elders. Like, this isn't about I'm trying to find a way out of my marriage or, or... Uh, they did something, I, I was struck once and now I have to desert. Like this is, you can leave to protect yourself. You're not supposed to just stay in a situation where you're taking physical blows from somebody. Not at all. You leave and you get the church involved. And again, I know I'm talking to mostly a, a Christian, in a Christian context. This is not going to be the same way that it necessarily works with unbelievers. But uh, So you take it to your church, you're talking to them, you're open with them. And you bring in the civil magistrate if it's necessary. We're talking about real abuse here, right? Like, we're not... I could, I could talk a lot about that. We're just talking about real abuse cases. And sometimes the civil magistrate needs to get involved if they are threatening, if they are, actually, if they are being violent towards you. The civil magistrate can lay charges and can protect victims of this type of stuff. And that is permitted. Getting protection from violent people is not unbiblically dissolving a bond, a union of marriage. The issue of the marriage can come after uh, this. So you are permitted to go to the civil magistrate and to go to the church in, in cases of real abuse. Now, this is where we need to get behind some biblical thinking because other forms of slimy behavior and sin is meant to be dealt with. Like, so that even if it's not at the level of adultery, Nobody's completely abandoned, but they are just not fulfilling their side of the covenant of marriage and their actions, their characteristics, the way they treat you is borderline abusive or in some of the abusive ways that don't get that aren't physical. Like I said about the, the money thing, and I do think we're not dealing with a too high number of people here, but when it happens, sin is meant to be dealt with in the church. Church discipline is there to put back on the right path people who are falling into sin. And this can happen in marriage too. So, through church discipline, if the husband or the wife is acting completely contrary to Christ, but it hasn't brought itself uh, directly to adultery or to desertion, the church is there to enact discipline. And that follows the Matthew 18 model, that you go to them privately with a two or three, you bring it before the church, to call the sinner to repentance. Repent. Be reconciled to your spouse. This is not biblically permissible to treat them this way, to treat your children like this. Or even if a professing believer leaves a professing believer and claims that it is for a whole bunch of reasons, the church has the authority to say to the person who left, this is not permissible. Work on this marriage. Reconcile this marriage. You're not permitted, to, biblically, to dissolve this union. And so church discipline is there for this reason. And at the end of church discipline, in Matthew 18, it says that you are to cast the sinner to Satan, to treat them as a tax collector and a pagan. This is uh, biblical terminology for they are declared to be an unbeliever. 
And after the, after it says that, cast them out, it says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a very scary thing to be to have church discipline enacted against you if it gets to the final step. Getting to the first step is is merciful. It is to get you to it, it is to correct sinful behavior. But if you get to the final step and you are unrepentant and you have excommunication, which is what this is, applied to you through the lawful measures available to the church, you are being declared an unbeliever on earth and that's bound in heaven. That's bound in heaven. This is not some small thing. God honors faithful church discipline on earth. And so the abuser may have been may have gone through church discipline and been called to repent of his or her actions and gets and does not do so, does not change their behavior, and then they are cast to Satan, they're excommunicated, thus being an unbeliever, thus you have the case of an unbeliever who is refusing to live with the believer. You're back in the 1 Corinthians 7 scenario. If the unbeliever refuses to live with the believer or does not consent to being with the believer, you are not enslaved. You are called to peace. You are not in bondage to that marriage union anymore. So, in cases of abuse, no, it is not one of the biblically per, uh, permitted grounds for divorce. However, abuse very abuse is sinful behavior and it'll go through the church discipline process and if there is no correction if there is no change in the situation then the sinner is being cast to satan they're an unbeliever thus freeing the innocent spouse from the broken covenant so so it's not really about oh the bible doesn't let abused people leave their marriages look how bad that book is it's not about that at all um but it is about men and women, Christians, doing what they can by God's grace, upholding their vow, the covenant that they made to their spouse, ultimately the covenant they made to God. And so it does end up in a case where abuse can be considered desertion and abandonment if it gets to the end of the church discipline process. However, that is the end step. If you are a professing believer, your Modus operandi is reconcile. You do not have to in cases of adultery and just blatant desertion. Those are the clear-cut cases. You are free to pursue a divorce. Biblically free. But if it is for other reasons of sin, including some of these um, abuse ones, again, we're not... It's pretty clear cut if it's physical. You can get you get the church involved. You separate, call the civil magistrate. But the other forms of sin and abuse, you get the church involved into that marriage, and that includes issues like addiction as well. That that can fall under this normal church discipline stuff. Ultimately, biblical there is biblical allowance of divorce in these serious covenant breaking situations, and I want to say now that this is actually mercy to the innocent spouse. We can look at divorce in a very unfair way. And again, this usually comes from people who have zero understanding or experience of any of this. I've experienced a ton of divorce. I've seen it all over my family. I've, I'm personally involved in one. I know what this is. And what I have been describing, I've lived through it. I don't know anybody really who has read as much on this subject as I have because this has been my life. 
I'm not talking from words on a page or, or theoretical ideas. This has been my life and my experience. This, it is mercy to the innocent spouse to allow for divorce. That is the whole hardness of heart talk that Jesus is getting at. Due to hardness of heart, people will commit porneia, people will desert and abandon. So it is mercy then that the innocent spouse of the matter not be bound for the rest of their life to this union where they could be then free to experience the blessings of marriage in a covenantally faithful way with somebody else. We'll talk about that issue of, of remarriage next week, but some of us can have way too harsh an understanding of this and a simple-minded understanding. It is mercy to the innocent spouse and judgment on the guilty spouse that there are biblical grounds of divorce. Wrongful divorce is disgusting and it's generationally damaging. It hurts children. It hurts... And when those kids grow up to be parents themselves, that pain is still there. But rightful divorce is mercy. Okay, well... Thank you for listening to the City of the Great King podcast. I'm glad that you have listened. Go in the nations. God bless. Bye-bye.